Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Paget. And I'm Tane Kell. And we are now going to fulfill one of our listeners' requests that we cover hot topics or breaking law. Uh, the new decision in Collier versus the state that was decided in October of 19, I say it's new, but it's been out for a minute, but I think it's really making its rounds right now, has called some of our colleagues a significant amount of consternation. I know that prosecutors are trying to figure out how to deal with this decision and other groups. Are you having that same experience in Cobb County? Yeah. I mean, I think when judges first saw this case come out, uh, as frequently happens, they thought, oh gosh, the sky's falling. Uh, There's so many new things we're going to have to add. I think we can break it down uh, for you into some smaller, easier to digest chunks and tell you the things that we think are required by Collier and the things that we think are not. Understand, this is a new case. There haven't been subsequent cases uh, that are interpreting it. So this is kind of weight and tain on Collier. So take that for what it's worth. This decision literally overruled dozens of prior cases. Yeah, I believe there were two full pages of cases that were cited that were overruled by Collier. And it was kind of like one of those, among others, we overrule the following. Oh, geez. And I mean, there's red flags all over the place. If you look up something right now having to do with a guilty plea, you get the little red flags all over the place because of Collier. That's right. So in Collier, a defendant who had entered a guilty plea to murder filed a motion for out-of-time appeal contending that his plea counsel was ineffective for failing to inform him of his right to appeal. That's right. The defendant said that his lawyer was ineffective for not telling him he could Appeal a guilty plea. Just let that sit for a minute. (laughs) He probably didn't do that because he didn't know that his client could appeal a guilty plea. Most of us who have practiced criminal law in the defense department didn't know that you could appeal your guilty plea. We thought that there was law that said that that a guilty plea effectively waived a lot of those rights. However, we were wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You know, the trial judge in Collier proper, um, one of our esteemed colleagues that we see at our conferences on a regular basis, he summarily denied the defendant's request for an out-of-time appeal. And I'll tell you right now, that's exactly what I would have done. I would have as well. Because it was a guilty plea. And it was out of time. Did we mention it was a guilty plea? It was a guilty plea. So recently... In 2019, the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court decided this Garza versus Idaho case, and the Georgia Supreme Court decided the Ringgold case and sort of gave notice that this might be coming. Both of those cases suggested that the Georgia's longstanding practice that, or I guess this longstanding case law, needed to be corrected in this regard. And Collier was the realization of that correction. Right. You know, the defendant filed and is entitled to an out-of-time appeal if his pleas counsel's performance was deficient, and that deficiency deprived the defendant of his right to file an appeal that he otherwise would have filed. Yeah, and there was, you know, in our in our case law, there was an interesting requirement for years that said um, that 
a defendant in uh, an appeal would have to prove that the appeal would potentially have merit in order to prevail. After Collier, um, that isn't necessarily so, and that's kind of a substantial change. It is. And then even after Collier, the defendant is required to prove that his plea counsel was constitutionally ineffective under the Strickland. And that's, as they say, the, the familiar Strickland test, the one that we deal with on ineffective assistance any other time. Right. Strickland basically is a two-parter. One, that the counsel's performance fell below the objective standard of reasonableness. And number two, that the counsel's deficiency, having been found to exist, prejudiced the defendant. So the first element requires the trial court to make a factual determination. And this is the thing that caused everybody to sort of go apoplectic. The, the trial judge has to make a factual determination whether or not the counsel was, in fact, de- constitutionally deficient. Tain, that generally requires a hearing. And now that if you have a hearing, you have to have what appointed? Appellate counsel, separate and apart from the person who was the plea counsel or the trial counsel. For and the it has defendant. to be conflict-free, right? And they have to be conflict-free. There, therein became the, the, the consternation that trial judges had. The standard applies to convictions from both verdicts and pleas. Now, in a Wait, bit, in a, there's some good news in Collier. Well, that was what I was going to ask. Wait, is there anything good that came out of Collier or any good news we can give to people? Well, the, the, the Supreme Court of Georgia said that the prosecutor may be able to challenge such an out-of-time appeal, especially if it's way out of town, by a defense, I guess, that they called akin to being latches. Right. How do you say it, latches? Lachaise? <laughs> I say latches. Oh, okay. Yeah. That is prejudicial delay. Yeah, and that, and that was the uh, was the terminology that they used, that the prosecutor could raise a quote-unquote prejudicial delay. They didn't define that for us, so that's something that will be determined, I guess, on a case-by-case basis in the future. But, you know, they did cite, the as just a, a, a passing example, the case where the prosecutor had passed away, the defense lawyer had passed away. The judge had passed away. The judge had passed away. The court reporter surprisingly didn't recall this plea (laughs) that was because it was 25 years later exactly so but they did cite that as one of those situations where there may have been so much water under the dam that allowing a plea now excuse me allowing the defendant to file the appeal now might actually be unfair they said that might might be slightly prejudicial delay So let's, let's give everybody the takeaway from Collier. This is going to be a shorter episode. Let's give everybody the takeaway from Collier. So if a defendant files a motion for an out-of-time appeal, either to a, uh, a, an appeal from a trial or an appeal from a guilty plea, the defendant has the burden of proving under Strickland that the plea counsel was deficient in, number one, not advising the defendant that he had a right to appeal, or number two, not filing the appeal in a timely manner. In order for the trial court to rule on that motion, the trial court's going to have to have a hearing. And they're going to have to make factual findings as to whether the trial counsel was actually deficient. If so, the defendant must reasonably establish at that hearing that the that but for that deficient performance, he would have timely filed an appeal. And that's probably going to be a low hurdle. They say they are, and you have no evidence to the contrary. Right. Now, a waiver of a right to an appeal, and I'm literally involved in the conversation about this now with some really smart lawyers, a waiver of the right to appeal 
under this Garza U.S. Supreme Court case would not prevent the defendant from having the ability to request an appeal. And, you know, Wade, I didn't realize until our most recent judges conference that this waiver of appeals thing was such a widespread practice. In my jurisdiction, that's not a part of normal plea negotiations. But apparently in many jurisdictions, part of the guilty plea negotiation is a defendant's waiver of a right to appeal. You know, I think that after the prosecutors and defense lawyers go to their summer conference, I think we're going to see a lot of changes because of Collier. Because effectively, they've said that you can't waive it. And if you waive it, it, that's a waste of time. So don't negotiate that. I really think that what's going to end up happening is that we're going to be asked to, to advise the defendant of their, that they must file a notice of appeal within 30 days. You do that by filing it with the clerk of this court at the end of a plea. Well, as you said in, in our last uh, podcast, Wade, I think one of the th- results of Collier is probably going to be that we're going to add some things to our plea forms. And just like we advise them of habeas rights or require defense counsel to advise them of habeas rights, we're going to have to have something on our plea form that's going to say, did you advise the defendant of his right to appeal? I think you're right. So, folks, that is really what Collier says. Now, it, 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 it sort of meanders a little bit into motions to withdraw guilty pleas. And it's not about a motion to withdraw a guilty plea, but but Justice Peterson in a special concurrence talks about how it very well may get there that if you file an out-of-time appeal, if for some reason that appeal has merit and you find that, that plea counsel was ineffective, then, then you can withdraw your appeal. I mean, you withdraw your plea and ask for a jury trial again. You can renew your right to a jury trial. Basically, you can start the process all over. And unfortunately, that has already come to fruition in a case called SOSA, S-O-S-A versus the state, a 2019 decision, where they talk about the, the that defendant's motion to withdraw his guilty plea was not timely because he didn't file it within the same term of court. But if SOSA is a f- successful on remand in obtaining an out-of-time appeal, he may be able to challenge the voluntariness of his plea to that proceeding. See Collier. So in other words, that train has also left the station, that that while we still have the, the, the existing uniform superior court rules concerning withdrawing a guilty plea, which is uniform superior court rule 33.12, it says that once it's entered, you can only do it if it's a manifest to prevent a manifest injustice. I think some of these cases may reopen some of those doors, but but time's going to have to tell on that. And like you said earlier, this is the Wade and Tain version of this, not the <laughs> Peterson and Namius version of this. So, well, two things not to uh, to forget. Number one on this. Um, that the right to appeal carries with it the right to appointed counsel. And so there are going to be some issues that are going to come up where people want to appeal their guilty pleas after Collier, where appointed counsel um, may have to be put into place. Um, The second thing, though, to remember, and this relates to another one of our podcasts, is when you have to have these hearings, if you have to have these hearings, um, don't forget, you can potentially do that through the Department of Corrections video hearing process. And uh, you can just go to our podcast with uh, our friend Stan Cooper from the uh, Department of Corrections and learn all about that. That's exactly right. Great, great hook there. Folks, we know that sometimes we talk about things that are just incredibly enthralling and that people are, are it's, it's almost like they're sitting around the uh, 
radio back in the day when Roosevelt's doing fireside chats. How old does that make me? Pretty old. Anyway, uh, I wasn't there for that, by the way. Right. Um, but regardless, we think you need to know about new cases that come out. And when people are, are banting or are, are talking about them, either on sidebar or otherwise, we think you need to know what they're about. So that's our best shot at talking about Collier. We appreciate everybody listening. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And we do love the appellate courts. We joke, we kid, but we love. All right. Uh, and thank you for tuning in to this issue of the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you, folks, for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically Jim Henneberger uh, for their technical assistance and providing the studio for us. Thanks, as always, to Stephen Turner and Turner Up Media, who does his best to get as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to CSCJ, the Council of Superior Court Judges, for allowing us to handle NJO and their support in this project. Folks, these are our own opinions. They represent the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tane Kell and do not reflect the opinions of the Council of Superior Court Judges, UGA College of Law, ICJE, or really anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at our website at goodjudgepod.com or you can contact us on email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Folks, please rate and review our podcast on whatever listening app you may be using. It'll go a long way to help others find the podcast. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this one. Anything else you feel like we need to say? No, that's all, Wade. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.